If you would like, you can go ahead and turn in your Bible to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. If you're flipping through, you might mess around and accidentally get to Ezra's right there, or you get to uh, Esther. So Nehemiah's right in there. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you uh, that we get to celebrate who you are. We've been able to worship you by child dedication, worship you with song, worship you uh, as we hear young people talk, talk about how they want to give their lives and use their lives to advance your causes. Now, Lord, let us worship you by the hearing of your word, preaching of your word. Remove me that your body might be able to experience you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, family, I don't see them here, but I want you to know that the logo that we have, the slide of Nehemiah, was created by our own Megan Hogel. So, uh, yeah, yeah, she hooked us up, guys, and uh, I might be selling t-shirts of that out the back, you know, in a minute. So just be ready, be ready. Um, I'm excited to talk to you guys about uh, our new book. This, this book of Nehemiah that we're going to be studying for the next coming months. Um, it's uh, uh, one of the stories in the Bible that might not be as well known, um, but it, it's, it's a story that doesn't start with a happy beginning. And oftentimes when you kick off a new series, you want to do it with like a joy and an excitement and let's go. And uh, I love that the Bible is real. It happens in history. And even if you're present and you don't believe that Jesus is king, uh, there are still millions upon millions of people that view the Bible as a historic work, meaning that these things happened and they've been tested based on other documents to say that King Artaxerxes was the king during that time, or uh, this king was the king of Persia during that time. And so my hope is that as you hear these facts, the facts will come to life and you will believe in a beautiful and holy God. Uh, but if you have to start with just hearing the story, that's good. Uh, actually, uh, the story of Nehemiah starts kind of sad, and uh, um, it, it is a little likened to how my wife and I and our team uh, kind of arrived a little bit in the D. Love the D. The D is my home. But I, I want to share with you somewhat of a, a news article that came out um, in 2015 that talked about what Detroit was like during the time this church planted. And, and, and it's told from a big picture standpoint but also from the lens of a woman. It said, uh, and that's, that's uh, Detroit News, uh, Joel Kurth and Christine McDonald wrote this article. It says that in Detroit, homes lost to foreclosure are often never reoccupied. 76% of the 84,000 properties at that time uh, were on the city's blight list were foreclosures. Uh, that was according to an inventory of housing conditions by the Detroit Blight Task Force. Taxpayers pay for the damage from demolition costs and declining property values uh, to a diminished quality of life. On the 8200 block of Faust near Joy on the city's west side, city crews last fall raised six bungalows that have been foreclosed since 2005. Much more work remained. All but seven 
of 24 homes on that block have been foreclosed in the past year. Excuse me, in the past 10 years. So that's going from 24 homes down to seven. People come around and see no neighbors, so they steal, they rob, and they strip out of homes, said Talise Banks, who was 30 years old, a single mother of two boys. They come by, they take out the windows, they take out the hot water tanks, whatever else they want from the homes. There's just a ton of problems. When she bought her home in 2002, all homes on the block were occupied. Her mortgage payment is $900 per month for a home appraised at $5,000. She owed $82,000 on the mortgage for the 900-square-foot home she was living in. Banks said she's lost more in break-ins than her home was worth today. The subprime mortgage lending epidemic hit the whole nation, but it strategically crippled the black middle class and devastated many of Detroit's neighborhoods. Detroit was fourth in mortgage foreclosures over the uh, uh, fourth in mortgage foreclosures um, between 2005 and 2015 behind Vegas, Phoenix and Chicago. But Detroit had far more tax foreclosures, 110,000 than those cities uh, and its housing prices slumped. Family, I'm, I'm, why, why am I talking about this to start off a, a sermon? I'm talking about this to give you a picture into the burden that the city was carrying. You, you, you think of a, a house being empty, but the impact that a house being empty becomes a heavy weight on the people. A heavy weight that people who are fighting to make their poor their mortgage payment carries, but also as they step outside are looking and saying, why should I keep fighting? When I went from 24 to seven homes on the block. But that was just one, one snippet into 2008. That was just one stat line. Shifts to our leadership. That was the time that the Kwame Kilpatrick was mayor. That leadership uh, associated terms with it like scandal, uh, perjury, uh, cover-up of murder, parties at city-provided homes, things that should not be associated with the people we make as our role models was being littered throughout the news. Burdens, a heavy weight. The people were carrying this. And and somehow the Lord aligned things up way before we could have imagined as Mac Ave for that to be the season that this church was started. I tell you that, family, because because you need to know your history. You need to know our history as a church. You need to know that we're still dealing with the effects of that uh, devastation that has happened in communities. You need to know that. But you also need to know that God reigns, that God is here, that God wants to care for people and use his body all over the world, specifically all over Detroit, specifically in this room to be a voice of hope. Nehemiah had a he had a similar situation. You got to You got to 
roll with me for a little bit because I got to give you a little bit of the history of Nehemiah because when you start the, 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 the book, it's, it, it has some background that bring you to that point, you know? So uh, if you, you remember, we start always with God had created all things and he said that these things are good. But then he looks and sees that sin distorts stuff. Sin messed up his beautiful, holy creation. And we get a world that's broken. But God still says, I'm going to choose a people for myself. And so he talks to Abraham in, in verse in chapter 12. And he says to Abraham that I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and the, those that who dishonor you, I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. Then we have this, this God-centered experience on Mount Sinai where he guides and cares for his people. Then his people move on from Sinai and they, they for some reason, listen clearly, build a temple where God is going to dwell and going to be present. But at some point, the people would rather have a human king than a godly one. And so they, they, they substitute uh, this God that wants to lead us, wants to, wants to guide them for an earthly king. And we had a pretty good one at first. David was pretty off the chain, you know. Uh, but then Solomon stepped in. And Solomon started off good, but he struggled with miniskirts. Solomon, Solomon started kicking it with people who didn't love God. And in doing so, he began to worship uh, another God. He began to, to not follow with the, the, the pattern that his father had set before him to, to allow this beautiful and holy God to be solely yours and yours alone. And so in doing so, uh, God responds. God responds when he sees people weren't faithful. And unfortunately, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he destroys the temple. The temple that was a place where the people of God were to go worship. It's crumbled. But in, but in not only did he destroy the temple, he also said, y'all are all the people, the Jews. I'm going to take y'all captive and I'm going to spread you out among provinces that we control. Because I know if I have all of y'all together, there's power in your numbers. But if I spread you apart, now I can diffuse the power that you guys might have. And so Jews were spread out all across the provinces that the Babylonians uh, were in control of. But then there's Ezra. And not that one. But Ezra the, the prophet. And uh, he begins to lead the people of God back to Jerusalem. He begins to bring the people back from that captivity. Him and a guy named Zerubbabel, don't try to say that too fast. The two of them together say, all right, we're going to lead the first move back. And they return uh, to begin to build the temple. And Ezra is a, a, a cool story. And you're going to see his name throughout Nehemiah. They're, they're, uh, he kind of sets some of the way for Nehemiah. And Ezra is one who's really passionate about reform of the individual. He wants to see you living right, wants to see your heart, wants to see you doing right. And so reform takes place and you see the people of God responding some, coming up short in some areas. 
And that's where we enter into the book of Nehemiah with the people of God scattered. The first group coming back, having uh, worked on and building the temple, trying to restore a sense of order in Jerusalem. But there's still more people to return and there's still far more uh, work to be done in the city. There's reform that's happened in the hearts of that first remnant that's returned, but yet still far more work to be done. So now would you join me in opening up uh, Nehemiah? We're going to start with verse 1, chapter 1. When you dare say amen. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. The Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning, the, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed. The remnant there, the remnant. So now imagine uh, what's a a town west of Detroit, that Inkster. Imagine, uh, yep, I got you. (laughs) Imagine we got a, some, some folks from Inkster, and, and we are in Inkster, and we long to be back here in the city. And so some people from the city come to Inkster, and we're like, hey, how's it going in Detroit? We, we can't wait for it to return. How are things going? And they look at you and say, man, all that protects Detroit is, is broken. Everything that that is an infrastructure is lost. And there are people there serving and loving and trying to rebuild, but, but they're struggling. They're, they're feeling this weight, that burden we talked about, they're feeling that burden. They're feeling shame. And, and, and why would that be the case? I, I, I want to bring up an image that I think will help you see it while I explain it. You mind pulling that up, Jacob, some of, those, some of those cribs, some of the houses? Imagine if you had a home that had no walls, like literally no walls. How would you feel in your home? Would you feel protected? Would you feel like you could, would you feel safe? I mean, would you feel like you could uh, have a sense of privacy? These walls were the front line of safety for any city, any city. And so other cities that knew you didn't have walls was almost like looking at you naked because you just exposed And, and, and that's the reason why there's emotional terms that are associated with a physical wall, something like shame. Why would, you, why would you feel shame that you don't have a wall? Because now you're not protected. 
Now, because you don't have a first line of defense, now you're at the mercy of anybody that is your opponent. And so this wall had been broken down, and we know the temple was at one point broken down, but now the walls are broken down too. And you're going to see this difference between Nehemiah and Ezra. Ezra's like, man, I want to see these people thrive as individuals. I want to see them have reform in their personal lives first. Nehemiah's more like, all right, God's doing something in your heart. That's cool. Now, how's it going to impact the culture? What's it going to mean for our society? People of God, what, we are naked before our opponents. What are we going to do together? And so he has a response in verse 4. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Wept and mourned. I... Uh, I, I sometimes, I'll just get to the point. Family, we, we need to make sure that at times we are doing life with people. I think I tried to put uh, spending time with people. Because you, you are able to mourn when you know what another person's carrying. You see, when, when they came from, from, Inks, from Detroit to Inkster, when they came from Susa, and said, listen, from Jerusalem to Susa, and they said, listen, the walls are down, and people are feeling shame. Like, that was, that, that rocked this man. That led Nehemiah, like, whoa. I mean, imagine if your neighbor next door to you just came out and said tomorrow, it took my home. My home is gone. I've lost my home, and I don't know where I'm going next. You might not have an answer right away, but would you mourn with them? Would you, would you weep? Would you be even connected enough, or, or do we know folks well enough to be able to empathize? And so this brother mourns. He, he weeps. But he doesn't stay there. He then moves on to fasting and praying. And uh, fasting is this tool of seeking God's heart. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a tool that we use to pursue God and experience more of his love. But it also can come with a request. Esther, when she finds out the the experience of the people, the Jews, and she's thinking that, man, like they're going to experience uh, uh, persecution. She fasts for three days before the Lord, seeking to be closer to God, but also that they wouldn't be persecuted. And so Nehemiah is like, man, my city is, is totally open the Jews that are starting to return have built the temple, but they are at the mercy of anyone. Lord, would you protect my people? Would you watch over them? Would you care for them? Would you step in and be their father? But then prayer. One of those small things that we say talking with God, and sometimes it, it, gets, uh, it gets too flippant, so we're like, hey, I, I pray all the time because, you know, whenever I think something, I'm talking to God. Well, 
Because if we listen to some of your thoughts, that ain't all for God. But, but it is a direct and intentional communication with the Lord. And we see his response of mourning and weeping, but not staying there and saying, Lord, on their behalf, I'm going to be praying for you. I'm going to be praying for them and I'm going to be fasting that you would move and move in a mighty way. So then they continue on. And, and, and if I can be honest, like, what, what Nehemiah's response is, is almost opposite to what we do sometimes. You hear of a bad situation, what do you do? Want to eat. Know about you. That ice cream starts looking good. You know, you hear, hear of something going on and you start feeling depressed. You start feeling sad. Food could be a great way to feed that, huh? Or, or you hear of something, drama field, or something you don't have control over, and what you do? Call your friend up. Tell them what happened. But see, that, see, see there's an opposite response here to, to, to actually indulging. This is the response of denying. Instead of talking to people who can't do nothing about the situation, Nehemiah goes to the one who can Turn with me to, uh, we're staying there in Nehemiah, verse 5. Love his response. It says, and I said, and now we're going to hear the, the, the prayer itself. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray. Before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Family, we, we have there's so many good nuggets in even this first 11 verses that I, I, I wish I could just preach on two verses a week. But I want to care for y'all and not have y'all in Nehemiah until your three-year-old graduates high school. You know, I'm trying to, trying to move it on. But, but aspects of each thing that is being mentioned now is going to come up as we continue in the next chapter. So I'm thankful that I have uh, other opportunities to preach from this book and our elders are going to be preaching from this book. So I'm really excited. Uh, but, but one that I want to highlight in these verses, notice in verse 6. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that what? I now pray. Continues to move on before you day and night for the people of Israel, for your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Such a beautiful image of Christ-centered leadership. Sometimes you confess because you know of those of what someone has done that has gone before you. See, Nehemiah was not present during all of the sins that were committed by his fathers, his forefathers. During some of the reigns of some of those kings, Rehoboam, some names that are pretty, pretty difficult to to pronounce during some of the 
things that was happening where they created false idols and worshiped things that were man-made. He wasn't even alive. But he knows that that's his family. He knows that that's his lineage. He knows that that's his people. And so he says, I personally have done some stuff where I've sinned, but guess what? I'm going to confess for our sins. I was uh, kicking it with J.D. and Titus yesterday. We'll, I'll throw a picture up on Facebook uh, at some point. But we went and did this. Uh, I, I wouldn't, it's called a warrior dash. And it's like, uh, what do we say, man? A, a, a lazy man's tough mutter. That's fair? That's fair? Okay. It's like an obstacle course for adults. You go get muddy, jump over obstacles, stuff like that. So as we're kicking it, we're coming back, and uh, uh, we're talking about different schools. And J.D. mentions, um, uh, like, Bob Jones University. And it is a, uh, a Christian university in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, they are uh, a, a school that, actually, let me read a little bit from this article. Uh, they are, they are a school that uh, lost their tax-exempt status because up, in, up until the year 2000, they banned interracial dating. Banned it. All right, so, so here it is. Uh, this is from an article uh, that, that I found, and I don't even know if it's the one you sent me, Titus, um, but it was in Christianity Today. And it was called uh, Bob Jones University Drops Interracial Dating Ban. The, the president at that time said, this thing has gotten so out of hand. All of a sudden, the university is at the center of a Republican presidential debate. The Southern School adopted its ban on interracial dating in the 50s. Ironically, the policy was not instituted uh, in response to the concerns of whites, but came after an Asian family threatened to sue the school when their son, who was a student at the school, nearly married a white girl. Bob Jones University did not admit black students until the 70s. The school lost its tax-exempt status in 1983 after a 13-year battle with the IRS, which said the school's policies violated federal law. The school had justified its ban on interracial dating by saying, that God created people differently for a reason. But I was kicking it with Titus. Y'all like, where does the good come out of this story? <laughs> so I'm kicking it with Titus. And he tells me about a connection that he had to the new president. Not the president who, uh, this thing has gotten out of hand. That doesn't sound like uh, uh, an admission that we've done something wrong. I want to change the policy willfully. That sounds like a this guy not a hand. Y'all twist my back. We're going to make the change. Not that president uh, who I believe at that time was Bob Jones, the third. Titus tells of a new president. And in 2005, the great grandson of the founder of Bob Jones, this this new president's name was Dr. Stephen Jones. And he was made president. And in 2008, he apologized for all of the racial discrimination that individuals had experienced at Bob Jones prior. Do, do, do you see the, the potential for healing that that did 
for the masses that had experienced racial injustice? Do you also see that he probably had very little to do with it? But he owned it. He said, this is, this is, this is my sin as well as our sin, and I'm going to confess on behalf of all of us. You see, the beauty of Nehemiah's words is, is Lord, you are a holy God. You are in control of all things. And so as a leader, the one who's going before all these people to, to, to beseech that you would do something mighty, I don't stand outside of them. I stand with them in need of you, but also in need of confessing. I'm telling y'all, family, it's, it's, it's a great godly characteristic when you're willing to confess. And, and I think that our nation, I think that our city, I think that our marriages, I think that our relationships would thrive so much more in the Lord if we would be a people that confess. I'm not saying run around just trying to find stuff and like be guilty for everything, but I'm just saying, what's it look like to, be, to have that be a part of the posture, a part of the character of what it means to be a Christian is that you confess. Continue on with me at verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Verse eight, remember the word that you commanded. We have, uh, we have a few kids, a couple, um, and our kids very rarely forget something that we say when it works out in their favor. <laughs> now, when it don't work in their favor, somehow, we don't, what? What'd you say? I don't remember that. But when it works out in their favor, oh, oh, it, it, it's very hard to forget. And so, you know, when we're all going to kick it and we're going to do something, and I'm like, well, maybe we can go to Belle Isle. I take a nap. I get up. Daddy, can we go? Oh, well, guys, I was just, you said, now you said, we could go to Belle Isle. And they're like dictating what I say back ver- verbatim. Sometimes they leave the maybe out, you know what I mean? But, <laughs> but they're saying, because they've heard dad speak. And with expectancy, they're hoping dad's going to come through on what he said. Family, Nehemiah is coming before his father and saying, Father, In your word, you've told me some promises. You've said that if we would return with hearts that love you, what is Babylon that has scattered us everywhere? Who cares what they do? That you will draw us back together. You've said your promises. You've told us in your word these truths. And so, God, I'm going to just remind you what you said. I'm going to just take a moment. Daddy, to let you know I heard you, and now I'm reminding you what you said. So can you do that for me? 
Can you start drawing back my brothers and sisters? Can you start bringing back your people? But family, it's, it's really hard to do that if we don't know God's word. If we, don't, if we don't know the promises that have been made, if we don't know the assurances that come through loving Jesus, if we don't know the truths that he's already communicated and said, these you can stand on to your last breath, it's very tough to remind him, to remind him of these things that he desires to be faithful on. So another aspect of godly character is learning and spending time in God's word. How awesome, how beautiful do we get to be? And I'm praying that there's one nugget that stands out for you as we keep looking at these different character elements of Nehemiah. But it'd be cool if all of them rolled with you. If you were like, man, I'm going to be a person of confession. I'm going to mourn with people and rock with them, but I'm also going to pray and fast on their behalf. Lord, I want to be a, a, a person of character that builds my beliefs upon your word. I want to hold you to, to I want to put my trust in the things that you say because you're a good God. But even if you can't do all of them, if you stand on one, that's a good way, good place to start. Good place to start. And so lastly, verse 11. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Two quick things from 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 that. I love that that there's a posture of submission before the Lord, that God, we're going to trust you with the things you say. We're going to submit to the things that that you have told us. You have been clear in your word that you would draw people back. But, Father, I got a request. I actually have a specific thing. I have something that takes place in this world. It's not written in the Bible that I'm going to have success and favor with the king. So while I'm trusting you for the bigger principles that you're going to guide and watch over and care for me, I got a specific situation I need you to answer. And so Nehemiah says, I'm asking for success with the king. Family, sometimes for fear of being let down, for fear of being told no, we won't ask God for specific things. We'll, we'll, and I'm with it. Don't get it wrong. I believe in the sovereignty of God. But I am trying to retrain my mind to not have on the back of every prayer, and if it be your will, God. So, Lord, would you, would you help us financially so we can get a van? But if it's not your will, that's cool, too. That's cool, too. No, Lord. I'm asking for a van. My sister. Uh, I just have a quick question. I have a, you know, my character, I know my character is sinful. That's good. I don't trust myself to make, that's a request I make, and it's God. That's good. Has everyone heard her question? And for the folks at home, uh, how, do you, how do I trust myself to make the right request? Uh, I think there's a few things. I think if we just look here, in, in Nehemiah's case, it's not a flippant request. Nehemiah has uh, listened first to the needs of the people. He's heard the state of the people. Then in, in understanding what the people are going through, he prays and fasts. 
And so now there's some work before he gets to making his request. There's some pursuit of God that takes place. And so we all, I want to say, we all need to work to get to the point of being able to come to God alone after pursuing him, loving him and make a re- and, and and have intimacy with God alone. All right. Like like that's a part of our Christian maturity that not even me as your pastor, you should be able to go to God alone. And, and we want to help you build that muscle. But but that's a part of Christian growth within Christian growth. God gives you community until you have that muscle that's strong. So now I've been praying. I've been fasting. Bernadette, you know me. Maybe you don't, but I'm about to tell you this story. Tell me if it sounds like I'm being selfish. Josh, tell me if it sounds like I'm trying to get over. Now we use community and we're saying, Lord, I'm going to try to take you at your word and allow community to be honest. Now, I know community is flawed, too. But prayerfully, somebody in the community listening to you today, you know? And that's where we do life together. And it's, and it's one of the things, one of the reasons why I'm like, I, I will to the end of my days shout proximity. People live in a lot of different places. And, and, and hear me here. I love, I mean, I think Rafiq and Joanne are probably here more consistently than a lot of people who live in the 48214 and y'all drive a distance. So I'm like, whoo, whoo, shouting y'all. You know, y'all have the chain. Love y'all. But there's something about like when you live near folk who get to see you, not just on your good day. See you and you mad because she just asked you to go to the grocery store. So you coming out the house stumping down the steps. Feel like going to grocery stores. You know, I was watching a football game. Oh, hey, Bernadette. How you, how you, you know, when some people get to get to do life with you on your good days and your bad days. And I, and I think proximity, us doing life in this zip code helped with that. And so, sis, I think we all struggle with that to a degree, you know, like, man, Lord, I want to. I want to ask you for something, but I don't want to taint it. But we're, we're trying to trying to trust the Holy Spirit, you know, Romans of that the, that the spirit will help to take the prayers that we even have and present them before God in, in the right way. But that we'll use community and we'll use uh, fasting and praying as means to help us refine it, what it is that we should be asking for. So great question, sis. But lastly, and Elisha. Oh, and I'm sorry. And if you're new, uh, they're not doing anything to disrupt service. Like I, I, we welcome this. I welcome this at MacAv. I usually say to our congregation, ask a question if you think it's going to bless the congregation as a whole. If it's something unique that you think is suited just for you, I'll be here after service. I would love to talk to you, sis. Yeah, that's a great question. It says, hey, why, why remind God of, what is the purpose of reminding God of his promises? I think it's twofold. I think uh, on one hand, it is really good for us because it reminds us of his faithfulness and it helps us to say, wait, 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 I'm in this situation, but you told me something that's above this situation. 
So let me be reminded of who you are, how you stand outside of it. Uh, But then two, uh, I I just think it is a clear example of God saying, I want to demonstrate my faithfulness unto you. I want you to see that when I say something, I come through. And now what that looks like might not be the way you thought, you know, and I've had, we've all had experiences where we've prayed for something, thought we knew exactly what God, how God should answer it. It's going to be like this, this size, this length, this weight, God, and this is what I need. And then he blows it out of the water and does far more than you, than you thought, but it still was what you needed. But his promises, his, 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 uh, I, I think, just like me as a dad and, and many adults in here, like y- you want your children to, to return and come to you uh, excited about you being able to care for and provide for them and protect them. Yeah. Yeah. And so lastly, <laughs> he says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. And fam, this is just like a, 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 a cool way of a reminder that we all are, can be used for the glory of God in whatever role he has us in. Occasionally in Detroit, we'll have this temptation to elevate the, um, hold on, excuse me, Ezra, sit up, stop. We have this temptation to... Um, Elevate the poor as if like the the poor experience or the marginalized experience is better than or greater than a rich person's experience or an affluent person's experience. And it's just not true. Just like that Bob Jones stuff. Uh, God has created us all equal. And what you have or don't have does not diminish or give you more value from a kingdom perspective. That's why. Like, I, I love and I'm so thankful for our squad um, of elders and Jenny. But for the most part, I can probably say like 99%. I don't know what any of y'all give as it relates to tithe. That's because I want to hold all of y'all accountable equally. I don't even want to be tempted to be like, well, come on, my leave. So come on. It's OK. Nope. Bro, you tripping. I want to be able to tell everybody equally. The Lord, like. Like, like the Lord wants to use each and every one of you where he has you. And some of you might be in, be in positions of affluence that you might have a reach that's far greater over, over the experience of the impoverished more than somebody who's on the ground working to remind those that are impoverished that you're of value, you're of dignity, you're of worth. And so, and so this brother who gets the report that the city has no walls, has his heartbreak, and he's probably in the most fortified place in the city. He's next to the king. You got guards. You got protection. You got comfort. And yet his heart breaks for others. Family, God will use you wherever you are if you let him. God will break your heart and have you have a desire for others if you let him. 
And so I'm praying that, that God would use this role, this, this character of Nehemiah to encourage our body. Because Nehemiah is just a, a, a picture. It's just a, a prototype. Each Bible experience is just pointing towards uh, one that, that was the ultimate servant. Jesus Christ, who, who was in heaven, experienced comfort beyond what we could imagine, said, my heart breaks for them. My heart breaks for you. And he came into life, came into earth to die on our behalf that we might be reconciled to God. See, this, this, this little Nehemiah dude trusting God to draw back <laughs> the people of God to bring them to Jerusalem is just a prototype pointing us towards Christ who reigns today but will someday unite all believers in him, past, present, and future. And that is worth giving our lives to. And so if you're a person in this, in this, in this, in this congregation and you just heard about Nehemiah and you're thinking, man, he sounds like a good guy, but you missed that Nehemiah is trying to get you to give your life to Jesus who, wants to sac- who has sacrificed all things for you. If you missed that, you've missed the last seven and a half hours we've been in this room. <laughs> but we truly want you to understand that, want you to experience Jesus, and want you to be able to leave here changed. Family, let's pray. Lord, man, we know what those burdens are like. We know what it's like to uh, drive down Harding and see so many homes empty. And, uh, and, it, and it, beca- it can be a weight. I think of the the work that our sister Bernadette is doing, and I'm thankful for it. But Lord, there are a lot of people hurting. And yet you want, just like Nehemiah, you want our love for you to have an impact on this community. So guide us. Lead us. Break us. That we'd be willing to to use whatever place you have of influence that we're in for your glory, for your namesake, that folks at the end of the day will believe in you and submit to a holy God because you are worth it all. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.